Welcome to Sobo Spotlight, brought to you by SouthBmore.com, your source for all things South Baltimore. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Sobo Spotlight. Kevin is going to be talking with South Baltimore Gateway Partnership Executive Director Brad Rogers, and together they will be talking about the millions of dollars of casino local impact grants that Brad's organization manages. The SBGP is behind projects such as a new master plan for the Middle Branch, a redeveloped park in Cherry Hill, a walking bridge in Port Covington, enhanced maintenance at Federal Hill Park, and a whole lot more. So thank you all for tuning in. Here's Kevin Lynch and Brad Rogers. So for years, I've wanted to have a podcast on SouthBeamer.com. And one of the big reasons is to talk to people like Brad Rogers, who's the executive director of the South Baltimore Gateway Partnership, because we have Horseshoe Casino Baltimore here in South Baltimore. And there's really a lot of confusion about where the revenues from the Horseshoe Casino go and how that benefits South Baltimore. And Brad is the perfect guest to explain all that to us. So, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Brad, when a casino generates revenue from gaming or otherwise when a dollar is lost at a table game or slot machine, explain to us how that money is divvied up. Sure. Well, as you can imagine, that money gets sliced up in a number of different ways and it gets a little bit technical, but I'll try and keep it big picture. The uh, first thing is that the money that comes to South Baltimore comes not from table games, but from video lottery terminals or slot machines. And when a dollar is generated at the slots, obviously the casino gets a big chunk of that. But a portion of that goes to public use. One way that money gets used is that it goes into the Education Trust Fund, and that helps pay for public education across the state of Maryland. And while South Baltimore obviously gets a small part of that. That's a statewide pool of revenue that doesn't directly affect South Baltimore in particular. Then, uh, of what remains, a portion of that goes, about 18%, goes to the Pimlico area. And the Pimlico area gets a certain amount of money uh, to spend for improving neighborhoods up in Northwest Baltimore. And of the remaining 82%, That gets divided between the three counties of central Maryland where there are casinos. So um, Anne Arundel County, Prince George's County, and Baltimore City each have casinos, and they're all relatively close to one another. And rather than have the money from one casino only go to that jurisdiction, what happens is all that money gets pooled. And to simplify a little bit more complicated of a formula, each jurisdiction gets a third of the total. And that way, uh, if somebody chooses to go uh, instead of to Horseshoe to MGM Grand or instead of MGM Grand to um, to, uh, uh, Maryland Live, there's no competition between the jurisdiction. Nobody is penalized if someone goes to one versus the other. And that way we also don't end up in competition with one another where uh, maybe Anne Arundel County wants money for a new highway interchange and Prince George's County doesn't want it because it would make it easier for people to get to their casino. We stop all that kind of interjurisdictional fighting. And so each of us gets a third of the total pool, which is great. And of that Baltimore's third, Baltimore typically gets about $14 million a year. And originally the way it worked is that all that money was spent through the mayor's office with the advice of a statutorily required 
board called the Local Development Council, or LDC. The LDC is chaired by Senator Ferguson of the 46th District, currently the Senate president. And he and a group of volunteer representatives from around the South Baltimore Gateway District um, have advised the mayor about how to spend the, those funds. The problem that the LDC faced is that the apparatus of city government is not always set up to quickly and dramatically and um, transformationally deploy resources quickly. And the years of city government can turn really slowly. And so about three years ago, we decided that we would split that money in two. Half the money, about $7 million a year, would remain with the city of Baltimore and overseen by the LDC. But the other half would go outside of the typical machinery of city government into a new public agency, an economic development authority called the South Baltimore Gateway Partnership. And so SBGP gets half of that money, and we're able to spend that money much more flexibly, much more quickly, uh, and to make sure that the our board of directors, which is almost entirely residents and business owners and nonprofit leaders from South Baltimore, have much more of a direct say in where the money goes, how the money is spent, where it's deployed, um, how we use it strategically. And now the that money is really... Um, used between two sister organizations. The LDC uh, has certain areas of expertise, things that they do really well. South Baltimore Gateway Partnership has certain areas where we work that we do very well. And we collaborate very closely all the time. That was a great summary. And you can certainly let us know a lot more about how those dollars are, are benefiting South Baltimore. So I, I know your organization, South Baltimore Gateway Partnership, really funds projects on about three different levels with the community grants, the transformational projects, and the enhanced services. So if you could explain those three different levels of grants you guys are doing a little bit more, that'd be great. Sure. So let me start off with our grants. About 20% of our money, or typically about a million dollars a year, goes into grants to fund good work at the neighborhood level. And we fund everything from large projects that cost $100,000 all the way down to very small projects. It costs $5,000 or less. And we think all of those are very important. The large ones, obviously, uh, $100,000 will pay for a whole program. It will pay for a capital expense. It'll pay for a staff person. We're very proud of those large grants. But we're also very proud of the smaller grants because oftentimes uh, grassroots, neighborhood-based organizations at the block or community level have never had the resources to really get large amounts of work done. And there's things that matter to them very much, which often don't get attended to. And we're very, very proud of being able to get money into the communities at that level. And often what we find is that a community organization that uh, receives a grant for $2,000 in their first year might have a hard time spending it because they've never had that much money to work with before. Uh, but by the second year, they really know how to spend it. And by the third year, they're coming back to us for $5,000 or $10,000. We had one organization come back to us after a couple of years um, asking for $16,000 for a community garden. And so our hope is that through a combination of providing the resources that the communities need and the um, technical um, training and support to help them figure out how to uh, deploy that money, that groups will find more and more elaborate and interesting things to do 
and um, and go through a trajectory of positive change at the neighborhood level. So that's our grant program. And we give away, like I said, about a million dollars a year in grants, although that got interrupted during COVID because the casino is closed down and we had a temporary, temporary interruption of our funding. But the um, uh, that's about 20% of where our money goes. About 30% of what we do is we're like a community benefits district, providing enhanced services above and beyond what the city of Baltimore can afford. And those typically go into parks and public spaces. We put a lot of money and a lot of time and energy into capital maintenance and programming in public spaces across South Baltimore. And that obviously includes our parks where we have funded, uh, you know, we mow the grass, we plant the rose bushes, we trim the trees, uh, all of that. We They go into um, larger capital projects uh, like um, uh repairing buildings and walkways and things like that. And we also fund all kinds of programming, ranging from the South Baltimore Gateway Sports Network, which provides free uh, sports programming for kids in low-income neighborhoods, in, um, in particularly in the south, southern and western sides of our district, uh, but also larger events like the 4th of July celebration on the Middle Branch, where we had Five or 6,000 people turn out for the first year, and we're going to be building that up to a 20, 30,000 person event eventually. So we're very excited about all of that enhanced services programming, and that is done not by grant applications, but we actually have a long-term, uh, we've done a needs assessment, working with all the different communities to find out what enhancements we need to do, and then we've got a, a long-term plan that we're rolling out of making those improvements. I should point out, by the way, that when I say public space, I'm not just talking about parks. We're also very involved with our main streets. We are lucky to have two fantastic main streets, Pigtown Main Street on Washington and um, Federal Hill Main Street, obviously, on Cross. And so we work closely with both of our fantastic main street organizations and give them each about $70,000 a year or so to invest in cleaning and greening beautification, and other things that attract people to come shop there. And that's in addition to any grants that they get. And it's in addition to the investment we've made recently in helping design with distancing to reopen our main streets in a COVID safe way so that people can go be on cross street and order food and sit outside and have a great experience with safety. So those are our enhanced services. Uh, and then the last part of what we do, the remaining half of our program money, goes into really big, really catalytic, what we call transformational projects. These are big ideas, ideas that we think are going to change the trajectory of not just South Baltimore, but potentially all of Baltimore. And uh, we have a number of those that we're working on. Our flagship project, which I'm sure you know about is we are spearheading the effort to reinvent the middle branch of the Patapsco as Baltimore's next great waterfront with 11 miles of parks and trails wrapping around from Brooklyn all the way to Port Covington. And that's a very exciting project where we have a lot of real, really, really exciting things happening. In fact, we just broke ground on the Middle Branch Fitness and Wellness Center in Cherry Hill, a $23 million regional recreation complex, which is going to be the nicest recreation campus in all of Baltimore. 
right on the banks of the Patapsco. Um, and we also do other things like we have we set aside nine hundred thousand dollars to support community development corporations in low income, predominantly minority neighborhoods um, to provide them with the operating support they need to professionalize their operations, to build their staff and to begin really acquiring property and and rehabbing vacant houses and um, and getting land under site control so that they can control their own real estate destiny and move their neighborhoods forward in the direction that the community wants to see. And all of that's going to be happening in advance of any market pressures for gentrification. So we've got a whole suite of programs that we operate across the district, and some of them are done by grant. Some of them are done through um, hiring vendors to mow the grass or um, clean the streets or do whatever. And then part of it is through these really long-term transformational projects that we think are going to have a profound effect on what life is like a decade from now. How are you guys able to accomplish all this? Tell me a little bit about the uh, the staff you have and the volunteers you have to manage so much interest, so much funds, and really a lot, a lot of details. Sure. Well, first, I have to mention our board of directors, who are truly incredible. We have a board of 21 people, and the vast, vast, vast majority of them are all residents of South Baltimore, whether they're from the peninsula in Riverside or um, or Federal Hill, they could be from Otterbein or Sharp Leadenhall, they could be from Pigtown, Barry Circle, or heading south through Lakeland, Westport, Cherry Hill. They represent their neighborhoods and, um, and they do so uh, faithfully and responsibly and it's a working board. So when we give away grants, the board is the one sitting and reviewing those applications. When we have a new program, the program committee is evaluating how good a job we're doing. When we have to build our budgets, the finance committee is there. And I really have to speak to the critical importance of having such an engaged, hardworking board. They keep us on the right path. They keep us honest. They keep us looking at what is the most strategic and valuable way to spend this money. Because while it seems like a lot of money, uh, the needs of Baltimore are great and you could end up squandering all of it by accident if you weren't very careful. So the board is a really critical part of how we are. And then I have to say that we have been very blessed with incredibly talented staff. We have a total of about seven people, including myself, and they are all top-notch professionals who have made it their their career, their avocation, their passion to make a difference in Baltimore. And uh, each of our different program areas has a director who's overseeing it. We have an incredible operations team. And we, uh, we believe that even though it's boring and even though it's hard, um, tracking every expenditure, making sure we have good documentation, receipts for every dollar that goes out the door, um, really high quality back office work. That's the boring, hard, nitty gritty stuff that keeps an organization running, keeps you out of trouble, um, keeps you making sure that there's no waste, no fraud, no abuse, none of the things that haunt us as a city and keep the money going where it belongs, which is to the neighborhoods. So we're, we're really lucky to have such a uh, top-notch grade A team working with us. 
Circling back to the redevelopment of Reedbird Park, there were two groundbreakings in recent weeks, one for uh, BGE Field presented by Kelly, which is a partnership with the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation to uh, put a turf field there at Reedbird Park. That'll be right along Hanover Street there. This will be this will have lights. This will have some seating. It'll be really a, a first class place to, to play all different kinds of sports. And then there was the uh, the groundbreaking for the Middle Branch Fitness and Wellness Center. This is uh, almost like a big YMCA that'll have basketball courts and places to work out, places to have community meetings and, uh, you know, places to, to have some you know business ideas and all kinds of things like that. So tell us a little bit more about this transformation of Reedbird Park and uh, what we're going to see there and what some of the timing is. Yeah, this is a really big story and I'm glad you asked about it. So more than a decade ago, the people of Cherry Hill were promised a new rec center. And they were promised and they were promised and they were promised. But the years dragged on and nothing really happened. The city would scrape together some money, but the scope would increase. So they'd have to scrape together some more money and the scope would increase. And over time, the whole promise would have been lost if the people of Cherry Hill hadn't been diligent in saying, no, 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 we've been promised. We've been promised. We've been promised. And when the partnership started, the plan was to take a surplus school site in Cherry Hill, right next to the brand new Cherry Hill Elementary Middle School, demolish it and build a rec center there. But it was going to be a hugely expensive rec center because that site is a steep hill. And because of the grade and the dimensions, you couldn't get a full regulation-sized pool and everything would be very cramped and you'd be going up and down the stairs or elevators all the time. And it was a lot of money for not a lot of um, payout. And at the same time, uh, the Baltimore City Department of Recreation and Parks got a new director, uh, Director Moore. And he came in and he looked at it and he said, boy, is this, really, is this really the best we can do with all of this money we've been um, putting together for more than a decade? And so he had the idea and we rapidly agreed with him that this shouldn't be just a very expensive neighborhood only internal recreation center this should be a much bigger much grander regional recreation complex on the banks of the patapsco and part of the middle branch restoration and something that was visible from hanover and Poteet street something where you could catch a bus to it easily something where multiple neighborhoods would have access to it and where we could do something world-class that was really worthy of the proud historic neighborhood where it was being located. And after talking it through with the community, they agreed. And so the whole project got moved to the much wider, much broader, much flatter waterfront campus of Reedbird Park. And the idea was always to have a state-of-the-art, world-class uh, fitness center with indoor and outdoor pools and indoor and outdoor basketball courts and uh, weight room and an indoor running trail, all of these great things surrounded by uh, multiple different fields. And as that decision was getting made, I had a conversation with Ripken Foundation. I said, look, you do great things. We've got this whole agenda for recreation in South Baltimore. We should build a partnership, you, me, and the Parks Department. And so the three of us put our heads together and we agreed that we would work together collaboratively to start building fields with the goal of eventually building three across South Baltimore. And 
it was very clear from the beginning that the first field should be right there in Reedbird Park. And so, um, so of the, I think it's four multipurpose fields going in right now for the Fitness and Wellness Center, one of them is going to be a beautiful turf field done in partnership with the Ripken Foundation. And we're really excited about that. And I think that not only will this be a tremendous resource for the people of Cherry Hill and the broader South Baltimore community, but I think you're going to end up having major tournaments happening from, you know, regional tournaments taking place here and people coming in from the surrounding counties or uh, surrounding states to come in and play sports tournaments here in South Baltimore. It's going to be fantastic. And like you said, we have, we've broken ground. So it's not a theoretical project. It is underway. Very cool. I know you love working with the uh, community members of uh, South Baltimore, but that's also got to be pretty cool uh, partnering with uh, Cal Ripken on a project. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to be on a Zoom call with Cal on it. And my three boys um, uh, here in the house have never respected me more than <laughs> the moment I was on a Zoom call with Cal Ripken. Very cool. I, I've only been on one Zoom call in my life and Cal Ripken was on it. So I uh, got <laughs> to keep that level high, I guess, for the next one. You know, Cal's obviously a uh, totally <laughs> quite the celebrity around Maryland. So I guess uh, it's only uh, not as famous from there on, but uh, very cool to see Cal Ripken uh, taking such an interest in uh, South Baltimore. I know his, uh, his group has been involved in other South Baltimore projects. And then you know, you look at this this park, obviously, it'll be a great asset, as you said, for South Baltimore and for the local communities and, and really the whole city, but also it's right on a highway, essentially. So really a, a great visual for people as they're coming into the city from Anne Arundel County, they see this world-class park. And as somebody said at the, at the groundbreaking, that'll make people think, now that's a place of, to visit. That's a place you might want to live. That that's pretty cool right there. So yeah, it's certainly a, a project that uh, will get a, a lot of eyeballs looking at it as they're driving up that busy street. Yeah, and I really see it as like I was just saying the fulfillment of a long term promise to Cherry Hill, but also the the start of a new promise. This is the first major project for the transformation of the Middle Branch, and. A $23 million down payment on an 11-mile vision is a really good start. And I hope it gives people the confidence that that vision of the middle branch as Baltimore's next great waterfront is not just a pipe dream. It is something that we are really making happen. Are we looking at about a, a year, year and a half before this new envisioned Reedbird Park becomes a reality? Yeah, I would say I would expect about a year and a half. Um, there was some joking at the... Um, uh, Senator Ferguson kept uh, uh, jokingly shortening the time frame at the groundbreaking just to um, make fun. But I think realistically, 18 months is a good expectation of about when we'll be done. So obviously, we just talked about the uh, the redevelopment of Reedbird Park, which is a big part of the, the Middle Branch Waterfront Master Plan. So let's talk a little bit more about that master plan. You mentioned the 11 miles of waterfront. That's in neighborhoods like Stadium Area, Westport, Port Covington, Jerry Hill, and Brooklyn. So that, that master plan, uh, where does it stand right now? What's, what's the current process of, of what's going on to, to make this new vision for this South Baltimore waterfront uh, move forward and get some ideas and, and get some projects going? Sure. So uh, the master plan process had begun uh, back in the summer. We had a little bit of an interruption, as you may have heard, when the lead design firm ended up having to leave the project unexpectedly. But that hasn't held us up at all. And we're now in the process of bringing in a new firm to replace them. As you may recall, there was a huge process with lots of public engagement and 
public participation to pick a design firm. And ultimately, of three finalists, um, uh, one was selected. But we're now in conversation with the second place finalist to take over and continue that work. And um, and that second place finisher is James Corner Field Operations, who, if you're not familiar with field operations, they designed the High Line. So we're in very good hands. And uh, we're in conversation with them now with the goal of having them on board at the beginning of the new calendar year. And in the meantime, we are uh, completing the first part of the work, which is kind of a pre-plan. We had been about three to five weeks into uh, developing the project brief when Westgate was first, uh, was, ended up leaving the team. And uh, the project brief is kind of a, a, a roadmap for how we're going to do the master plan, what is included, what is not included, what our priorities are. Uh, it lays out our core values and metrics and strategies and goals for what we want to be in the master plan. And we didn't want to delay that work, especially because we were already about halfway done. So we're going to be continuing that starting probably the middle of October and using the team that we already have in place and finishing out that work. And to that team, we've actually, we've taken this time since we've had a moment uh, uh, to beef up a part of the team that I think is going to be really critical and valuable. We've always seen from the very beginning, the Middle Branch Project as a, an environmental justice project, reconnecting neighborhoods in South Baltimore, particularly low-income communities and communities of color with their waterfront and giving them access to the same resources and opportunities for recreation and economic development and um, and beauty and quality of life that other more affluent neighborhoods have had. And um, now we're taking this opportunity since there's been this pause to bring in world-class experts, national experts in the fields of environmental justice, um, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion in planning projects and adding them to the team. So I think we're actually gonna have an even better product than we might've had if we hadn't had this temporary hold. So starting in mid-October, we're gonna be doing, finishing up the project brief, and that will take through November, December, and then hopefully by January, we'll be starting up main master plan again with field operations as the prime contractor, as the lead design firm, and that's very exciting because they're a fantastic firm and we're thrilled to work with them. They, if you're not familiar with them, they are the one, like I said, they're the ones who designed the High Line in New York. They are doing the Presidio in San Francisco. Their projects are all world-class and amazing. Awesome. And, and I know if people have heard about this project and there's certainly some skepticism as you think about the wish list of the amount of things that, that Baltimore City wants and how we're going to fund all these things. But I think it's important to note with this project, is much of it is private, privately owned land, whether you're talking about the Port Covington development or you're talking about the, the properties the casino team has towards the top of the middle branch. You're talking about, you know, Harbor Hospital. So, so talk to me about kind of the different stakeholders that are involved in this middle branch master plan and how it's not so much just redoing all this public land where it's really partnering and creating a vision to maybe hand off and team up with some private partners in this in this process. Yeah. So we are actually very lucky. If you look at other cities or even maybe other parts of Baltimore, if you're trying to do a plan of this scale and this vision, you'd be starting from scratch. You'd be saying, there's nothing going on. We're all flat-footed. We need a big idea to shake everybody up and get them to do something. But in South Baltimore, 
we're actually in a very different situation. There is great work and real things happening all over the place. You have major development projects like Port Covington, the Casino Entertainment District, the Westport Waterfront, all of which are really moving forward where real things are happening, um, particularly in the first two. You have neighborhoods where real change is going on. You have uh, fantastic community development corporations that are doing work. You have community gardens and community programming at the neighborhood level. And you have uh, major new investments, like talking about Cherry Hill. Not only do they have a new recreation, major recreation complex going in, they've got $90 million worth of new schools and a brand new bank, just as one example. So there's real, real work going on. And part of that is um, helped by the fact that there's a stable ongoing funding stream in the form of casino revenues raining down on South Baltimore. And so there is money for parks and there's money for recreation and there's money for cultural programming. There's money for community gardens. These things are all really happening now. And so our master plan is not so much about um, starting from a blank slate and telling everybody what they ought to do, but rather braiding together, weaving together all of these individual projects that are in motion at different scales of space and time and weaving them together into coherent framework so that they all merge seamlessly with one another and in turn support one another so that people aren't in isolation trying to do something without help. And I'll give an example of how this really works practically. Um, the neighborhood uh, organization of uh, the Greater Baybrook Alliance worked collaboratively with Harbor Hospital, and they applied for a half-million-dollar grant last year to uh, design a trail connection between the Middle Branch and the BWI Loop Trail, connecting the Middle Branch to BWI, which of course then connects down uh, along the um, BNA Trail to Annapolis. And they said the reason why this is important is not just because Brooklyn would like to have a trail, although Brooklyn really wanted to have a trail. This is part of the middle branch, and the matching funds are the middle branch. And Anne Arundel County got excited because Anne Arundel County would, could partner with them and be connected to the middle branch. And suddenly, instead of it being an isolated neighborhood struggling desperately to get the attention of, uh, you know, of a grant maker with a limited pot of funds, Suddenly, they had all of these big partners writing letters of support, enthusiastically getting behind their project, and they want a half million dollars to design that trail. And so that's the kind of virtuous cycle that I think we're building here through that process. The trail doesn't have to be my project. It's our project together. How cool would that be to be able to take a, a bicycle from from South Baltimore to Sandy Point or to, to downtown Annapolis or, or, or to BWI. Very cool. I remember growing up kind of the kind of the big destination on the BNA trail was to be able to go to the Marley Station Mall, which actually just got sold at foreclosure. Maybe that becomes a, a new asset in the future. But very exciting to think that this 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 path that's a big part of Anne County and Baltimore City can can just keep evolving where it's, you know, obviously a big part of fitness, but also, uh, you know, people commuting as well. So it's a very cool project there. You know, a big part of this, whether we're talking about cars or cycling or just just using your feet, uh, Hanover Street Bridge is is a project that uh, 
a lot of people are, are also called the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Bridge, a project that obviously has huge interest in South Baltimore and even Anne Arundel County, a bridge that's obviously in need of some kind of replacement or major repair. And I know an interesting aspect of, of the master plan is the thought of maybe turning that existing bridge into a park and then replacing that either with a bridge that takes a completely different route or, or maybe the same route. So so tell me a little bit about that vision for the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Bridge. So the Hanover Street Bridge is a really important part of this whole conversation. It is a signature architectural feature of South Baltimore. That vista looking over the bridge as the sun rises in the east is, uh, is sorry, my wife just walked into the room. I have to start again. Um, uh, the Hanover Street Bridge is a really important part of this whole conversation. Uh, it's a signature architectural feature of South Baltimore. And that vista of that beautiful historic bridge over top of the water is a striking architectural moment for the city of Baltimore. But it's also more than 100 years old and well past its engineered design life. And so the problem we face is that it will literally cost tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars to repair. We don't even know the exact cost because we haven't completed yet the engineering studies to know exactly um, how much work it will take. But it will take a lot of work. And to their credit, the Department of Transportation has gone to Annapolis year after year after year saying, hey, does anybody want to help pay for this? Does anybody want to help pay for this? Could somebody please help pay for this? But Annapolis is full of really worthy and deserving projects that need a lot of capital dollars. And so far, the city of Baltimore has not succeeded in getting help figuring out how to solve this problem. And we have to solve that problem because eventually we're going to reach the point where trucks or maybe even cars won't be allowed to cross on the bridge. It's just a matter of engineering. And from my perspective, the way we address this is by not dealing with it in isolation, but looking at it in the context of the broader opportunity for the middle branch. It's not just a transportation question. It's not just an engineering question. It's a bigger planning question about what we want the middle branch to be a decade from now. And my feeling is that we're only going to solve that problem if we really look at it apples to apples. What is the investment worth given where we're trying to go with the whole middle branch? And I think it's worth looking into the question of whether if you combine the uh, recreational value and the economic development value and the transportation value all together, it's really worth looking at that question of a second bridge, which might be contemporary and beautiful uh, designed for vehicular traffic and taking this beautiful historic bridge and making it into an experience for people on foot or on bikes or on scooters going back and forth with trees and bushes and, um, and waterfront overlooks the net benefit to Baltimore could well make that decision worth it. And so we are in, have a great partnership now with the Baltimore City Department of Transportation, agreeing that whatever we all decide to do, it's going to be one strategy, one team, one set of studies, one coalition of people to put together the funding strategy. 
Wow, that's certainly a, a, a wild idea for people to process. And I know they've seen some some renderings of that, but certainly that would that would be a certainly something to follow in, in the coming years. And something I've been talking about just personally for 10 years is this cool opportunity to create this kind of pedestrian cycling loop around the middle branch. And obviously there's some some missing pieces there where you would need uh, a way to get from, you know, Swan Park, Port Covington, essentially over to Westport. And, and the way to do that would be the, the, the existing Springs Garden swing bridge, which was once a rail bridge. Uh, the, the Port Covington team, and I know you've gotten involved in that. There's a lot of interest in turning that into a pedestrian bridge. So tell me a little bit about that project. I know that's that's moving forward a bit. So uh, tell us where we're at with that. Sure. So first of all, I should say that that east-west connection between Westport, a place where lots of people need jobs, and Port Covington, a place where we hope to be building, creating lots of jobs over the next 20 years, is a really, really critical part of all of this. It's also tied to the larger goal of having Baltimore as a city that is interconnected for people who don't have access to or don't want to be forced to use their car because it's all part of the um, Baltimore Greenway Trails network, a giant loop that would connect all the different parts of the city together, including South Baltimore. And it's also tied to bigger questions of what happens to the uh, Hanover Street Bridge, because that's another important crossing for people who don't have or don't want to be forced to use a car. With regard to that bridge, my understanding, and I haven't been in any of those conversations, is that the Port Covington team has not succeeded in getting CSX, which the railroad company that owns the bridge, to agree to license the bridge for a uh, pedestrian crossing. I don't know why they've struck out, but to date, they haven't succeeded at that. But we don't want to be limited by what a railroad company wants to do. We want to have that connection in place for people that need to get back and forth. We don't want Westport to feel isolated from Port Covington, and we don't want to create a situation in which we have a Gold Coast on one side and an overlooked, ignored coast on the other. So that connection is really critical for a number of reasons. So uh, we've been very lucky to have received a grant for about $350,000 to begin engineering studies for a parallel pedestrian bridge, which would be, let's call it 100 meters south or north of the existing bridge that would follow the same route and which would make the same connection. I actually think that in some ways, it might be easier to design and build a new bridge than to rehab the old bridge. I would love to, from a aesthetic perspective, from a historic preservation perspective, I would love to have connections to that bridge. But um, practically speaking, it's a very old bridge in very poor shape. It even caught on fire a few years ago. And the engineering costs of rehabbing it might be the same or more than building a new bridge. So one way or the other, we're going to figure out these engineering issues as part of the middle branch study, and we're going to figure out how to get it designed and permitted and built. We don't have the money yet to do the construction, but we can get the preliminary engineering done now. And that's what we're going to do. 
very cool. Obviously, the the great uh, connections, as far as you said, for for getting to work in different areas. But if you can imagine, I believe that that loop would be about five miles entirely on the on the middle branch. What an incredible place that would be to to go for a run, to take a walk, to take a bike ride with with some incredible scenery. And another huge aspect uh, of the middle branch is obviously water quality. I mean, if you could turn this into a place you could go swim. I mean, what a what an increased asset it would really become. So I know another project that you guys are involved with is is getting a water wheel installed on the Gwyn's Falls, which would help eliminate a lot of the trash that comes in into the middle branch and really aesthetically make it look a lot better. So so tell me about that project and, and where that stands. Yeah, so we are very lucky as a city to have something that I've never seen anywhere. There's a lot of things in Baltimore that you don't see anywhere, but this is one that's really noteworthy. We have our own indigenous local technology for keeping trash out of our waterways, and that is the trash wheel. This started with what's now called Mr. Trash Wheel at the mouth of the Jones Falls. We now have two more, Professor Trash Wheel and Captain Trash Wheel, uh, one in Canton and one um, at Masonville Cove in Brooklyn. Uh, And this is a really amazing piece of environmental technology where the motion of the current of the of the river turns a paddle wheel which pulls trash up a conveyor belt and into a big floating dumpster where it can be removed uh and uh, disposed of properly and if the water isn't turning fast enough solar panels can pump water onto that wheel and turn the crank itself. So the whole thing operates without any gas, without having to plug it in. It's a truly remarkable piece of engineering. And we want to make sure that that same technology is working for us in the middle branch. And so we are going to be installing at about the beginning of the year, the fourth trash wheel for Baltimore, the largest trash wheel to date, a huge trash wheel at the mouth of the Gwynn's Falls, right where it enters Ridgely's Cove, next to the incinerator, between 95 and the incinerator. That's right where the Gwynn's Falls enters. And uh, the Gwynn's Falls runs all the way through South Baltimore, all the way up through Leakin Park, all the way to the county line. And what that means, it's a huge watershed that pulls trash from... uh, storm drains all across West Baltimore. And at the mouth, you end up with huge amounts of floatable trash and woody debris flowing into the middle branch. A lot of that bangs up against the far shore, but most of it flows down into the main water body. And we're going to be able to collect something like 60% of all the trash getting into the middle branch from that one device, which happens to be docked right next to the incinerator. And while I don't know what will happen with the incinerator in the long term, as long as the incinerator is there, they've agreed to take that trash and dispose of it right away for free because they literally don't have to truck it anyway. And so this is a really exciting opportunity. In fact, I'm going to be doing a tour and looking at the new device um, as it's being constructed later this afternoon. But it's a fantastic partnership between ourselves the Waterfront Partnership, who obviously have pioneered the use of that technology, the Maryland Port Administration, 
the city of Baltimore and lots of other partners who have come together to make that happen. Another project which could have a huge effect on the middle branch, which I know some of your neighborhood organizations and CDCs have given a letter of support to is the Maglev train, which right now it looks like they're really hoping to to make the station in Cherry Hill as opposed to the other location of, of Camden Yards, which would also be in South Baltimore. So if the Maglev were to go to, you know, Cherry Hill in the middle branch, I guess talk about some of the impact you think that could have on the, this entire vision you have for this area. Right. So first of all, I should say that I don't have any specific knowledge of the details of where the maglev is in the process. And um, and so this is actually a topic that I myself need to probably get a little bit more of a handle on by talking to them directly. I haven't had a conversation about the maglev um, in many months, so I don't know where they are in their process. But generally speaking, I would say this is one of those, let's call it low probability, but high consequence uh opportunities for Baltimore. I think there's still plenty of ways that the maglev might not happen, and none of us should be pinning our hopes for the future on that. We should be moving forward on our own with things that we can control. That said, if it does happen, it would have a profound impact, particularly on Cherry Hill. Um, and, And the Cherry Hill transformation plan, the master plan for Cherry Hill that just got adopted by the planning commission uh, sets expectations for what that would look like. And they're already operating under the assumption that there could be development pressure on that Northwestern side of the neighborhood. And it would become yet another node in this tapestry that we're developing of, um, uh, of, not just one thing, but many things. Obviously, you have parkland and public space. You have commercial districts. You have large development projects like Port Covington or Casino Entertainment District. This would be another one of them. But then you also have neighborhood-based economic development strategies, uh, which are more focused on existing residents and preserving affordability. And this would just become another node, another block, another piece in that tapestry as we move from one to the other to the other. I really believe that Baltimore is big enough for a lot of different things and a lot of different kinds of people, and that we don't have to adopt a zero-sum game approach where one group of people getting their needs met implies that another group can't get their needs met. I think there's space enough in our neighborhoods for all of this to happen, and, um, and the Cherry Hill Transformation Plan is a really great step forward in planning ahead for what it would look like for Cherry Hill to be and feel like and remain Cherry Hill, even amid changes that are going on. And I know another um, park that has a master plan is Solo Gibbs Park there in Sharp Leadenhall. And I know you guys have been involved in that process and potentially there will be more grants given out by your organization to see that go further. So talk about what's going on at Solo Gibbs and how you guys might be involved in the future of that park. So. I really believe in Solo Gibbs as a park. First of all, I love Sharp Line Hall as a neighborhood. And um, I think it's really critical that the proud, longstanding history of African-American communities in South Baltimore not get overwritten by new development, not get um, overlooked, ignored, displaced. And I think that that public space is not really is not just a critically important asset for the community. 
but also a really critically important place where multiple different types of people with multiple different types of backgrounds could come together and share a common experience. So we see all that as really important. The implementation of the master plan is a little bit complicated because the master plan didn't include a financing strategy for exactly how all the different pieces were going to get paid for. And so what we've been trying to do working with the parks department is figure out what are the opportunities to do in a phased approach, part A and then part B and then part C and then part D, building our way up to larger and more dramatic interventions. Right now, we've got a concept together for how we might be able to fund string of first improvements to some basketball courts and maybe the uh, tennis courts and have brought a proposal to the community to ask them what they think. Is that a good way of moving forward? And we're waiting to hear back from them. But if the community representatives are excited to move forward, then we'll put together that project and try and get it implemented in the coming calendar year. And so that would be the first chunk of that work to get accomplished. But we don't want to move forward with it without the community approval because they could tell us, no, 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 it's far more important to work on enhancing the trail or some other part of the plan. And so we don't want to do it without their permission. Obviously, casinos have been hit hard like many industries during this COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm sure casino revenues will be down significantly. What's your guys' outlook for for maybe, I guess, the next year as far as potentially are you guys going to have to, I guess, lower the amount of grants you can give out? Or how do you guys foresee the next maybe year to year and a half with with getting through this this current pandemic and and lower casino revenues? So what I would say is that we, like many people, across the city, across the country, across the world, are very aware that we're in a fluid situation where lots of things outside of any one person's control are in effect and uh, and could change dynamics uh, in a heartbeat at any point in the future. And so our approach is to be flexible, to be cautious, and to be, um, uh, and to be ready to change at a moment's notice if the if the need arises. We are focusing right now on the current fiscal year and trying to figure out, uh, even though we've got a budget for this year, how cautious should we be and how um, how much money should we commit to spending in the first chunk of the year and then keep reevaluating as we move through the year either opening up the floodgates or tightening them up again, depending upon what happens. We're very lucky that the casinos have reopened. And as they've reopened, um, uh, you know, uh, the rates of revenue being generated are surprisingly good. But we don't have any idea what will happen with COVID. And we don't know what will happen um, if uh, they'll need to be shut down again. We also don't know if, as Annapolis goes through its um, own budget crisis, whether there will be pressures to capture or redirect any of the funds in from South Baltimore temporarily to plug another budget hole somewhere. So we're watching all that very carefully. And hopefully in the next month, we'll have a game plan for how we're going to address the first chunk of the year. And then we'll be watching very closely on a month by month basis. And if circumstances change for the better, we'll plan for more spending. And if things go um, in the other direction, we'll tighten up the reins. But we we don't want to be in a situation where we lackadaisically go forward um, 
spending money and then suddenly either don't have it to spend in the future when we need it or have promised people things that we can't afford. We want to be really careful about all that. We got caught in a very awkward situation in our previous grant cycle where everyone had applied, the grant slate had been selected, and two days before the board meeting to ratify the slate, the casino shut down. And we don't want to put anybody in that position again. So we're going to be very careful. The South Baltimore Gaming Partnership is involved in so many things in South Baltimore, and we, we could talk for hours. It's really incredible the, the scope of things you guys are involved with and the things you guys are assisting on. I certainly recommend going to southbeamer.com to see some of the, the projects we covered, like the, the improvements to Riverside Park Pool, uh, some of the outdoor concerts and all kinds of things you guys have already done. And obviously go to South Baltimore Gateway Partnerships website. You can see all the different grants they've awarded. You can see some of the different projects they've highlighted. There's obviously so much they're doing and what an incredible scope of work. And we, we could talk to, to Brad forever, but uh, we don't want to take up too much of his time. So just one one final question, Brad. Um, obviously, there's there's so much going on in South Baltimore. We obviously have neighborhoods on the peninsula that, that are booming, but obviously still have needs. You have neighborhoods like Pigtown, which are seeing a little bit of a renaissance. You have neighborhoods like Cherry Hill that are working on, a, you know, some plans to transform their community. Obviously, Westport could could change a lot with a big waterfront parcel there. Port Covington, probably one of the biggest projects in the country. So, in your mind, where where could South Baltimore be twenty years from now? What I mean is, is this have the potential to be one of the the great urban sections in America? Where do you see South Baltimore's potential in the next twenty years? Yeah, I see South Baltimore as the heart of a great American city where we have taken advantage of our real assets, our real opportunities, our real strengths, and where there is space for everyone to flourish. I think that the large projects that you were talking about are going to move forward because the fundamentals are real. Uh, the There is real value in being on a beautiful waterfront. There is real value in being part of an authentic, genuine American city. There's real value in being off the 95, um, in being part of the 95 corridor. So I think those big projects are really going to happen. I think also that the work at the neighborhood scale is critically important and is going to continue to move forward. And as neighborhoods become uh, better able to chart their own path, shape their own destiny, control their own real estate, drive their own economies, um, shape their brands, build their quality of life. I think those are all of our neighborhoods are going to increasingly become strong, stable neighborhoods that can stand on their own feet and and uh, and not just feel proud as they already do, but be accomplished in in uh, driving the change that they want to see. And I think that means that we will continue to have communities of color. We will continue to have affordability, but we will also have lots of new opportunity, new jobs and new owner occupants and new places to to shop and eat. And I think we're going to have all of that built on the strength of quality of life. You know, one of the things that I find a little bit disappointing about Baltimore is that we've never pursued a quality of life first strategy. We've focused on other critical issues like crime or education. But I think in South Baltimore, we have the opportunity to start from quality of life and build an approach that benefits and strengthens the existing communities that are there. And that creates a compelling argument for why 
people should choose to live in our neighborhoods because the quality is there and the opportunity is there. So I just see nothing but upside for South Baltimore over the next 25 years. And frankly, I think we'll be seeing a lot of, um, of that happening in far less than 25 years. So often I get asked with some of the issues Baltimore City has going on, why, why do you continue to live there? And I just simply say my day to day life in South Baltimore is awesome. The, the quality of life is amazing with, with all the different things we have. It's, it's there's no other place I'd want to live. And obviously it's exciting to hear about so many other quality of life additions that will come to this area that I know a lot of people are excited about. And, and honestly, I get asked the question so often, is there anybody more plugged into what's going on in South Baltimore than I am. <laughs> I think it's clear that Brad Rogers is as up to date on every, everything going on in South Baltimore as anybody. What an incredible resource of information you are for what's going on in South Baltimore. And obviously your organization is involved in, in so much. So, so thanks for uh, some of your time. We'll have to bring you on again because you guys are involved in so many things going on in South Baltimore. So, so thanks so much for joining us. That was incredible. Kevin, it is such a pleasure. I just have to say uh, your website and now podcast are such an incredibly important resource. I use them all the time to keep track of what's happening in the area. I'm just grateful that you do what you do. Sobo Spotlight, brought to you by SouthBmore.com, your source for all things South Baltimore. Baltimore.